Welcome to Adeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast, the sweet 16th episode. If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneurs across Africa. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in once again. I'm just going to make this real quick. We've got a really, really interesting interview this week, and I'd love to get right into it without further ado. So I just want to say that everyone listening to the show, please take a couple minutes um, after you listen to the show or before you listen to the show to rate us on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Um, we're getting a lot of hits and a lot of traffic on the show, and it's just as a result of everyone like you that's listening to the show, iTunes and um, all the other sites I mentioned. They they use the statistics to compile in the ag- algorithm and rate the show. Uh, so it really mean a lot to us if you would help us stay at the top of the rankings and ratings by just clicking the like and review button on iTunes and all the other websites I mentioned earlier. And don't forget to share the show with your friends on Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, Facebook, and every other social media channel that you use. And now, without further ado, here's the interview with Misan Rawani of Wave Hospitality. Hi, good morning, guys. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Misan Rawani. She's the co-founder of West Africa Vocational Education and Designing Futures. Misan was a Harvard MBA and worked at Monitor Group as a consultant. She left her consulting job in 2012 to co-found her current company, where she, along with her co-founders, aimed to change education in Nigeria and Africa in general by equipping young graduates with the skills necessary to obtain and maintain their jobs. Misson, welcome to the show. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, So I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, So grew up here um, and left for college. Um, but during my time here, I think what's noteworthy about my journey is that I, I, I really, I enjoyed school. I was one of those people who sort of looked forward to going to school on Mondays. Um, and I think it had a great deal to do with my teachers. Um, I admired them and they imparted a lot of, of knowledge and wisdom and just exposure and understanding uh, on me. And so I used to want to be a teacher. Um, and so I remember once when I was young and, you know, gathered with family, as, as sometimes they do, they'll just ask you for laughs. Oh, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said I wanted to be a teacher. And everyone sort of laughed, but also, <laughs> like, in shock, like, oh, wait a second. This is, like, this is, she's joking. She wants to be a teacher. Oh, how do you know that you're going to be, you're going to be poor if you're a teacher. You know, you're going to be doing lesson. And oh, do you want to be like that? Your lesson teacher who comes here <laughs> and, you know, has been a primary one teacher all the time. And I, and I didn't really see why it was funny. And I thought, well, yeah, I, I want to be a teacher. But um, just, just seeing how everyone reacted, it got me thinking, like, you know, what sort of system are we in where young, bright children who admire their teachers and, and want to be teachers are mm-hmm. discouraged. Um, and so, you know, I had a quiet resolve as early as, as the age of six to say, you know, one day I want to 
change the system such that no one laughs when, when a young child says they want to be a teacher. So it sounds like you were pretty resolved from an early age to go into the education space. So what did you do to pursue that dream? So fast forward, went to college, studied economics, um, and then went into consulting for a few years. Um, and, and I think my, my passion for economics and for management consulting came from this core part of my being that just enjoyed solving people's problems for them. I love the look on people's faces when you've added value to them by helping them think about a solution to their problem. Uh, and so with the economics, it was really how do you help individuals, businesses, governments maximize their utility um, by, you know, prioritizing their, their unlimited wants with um, their limited resources. Um, and, and that was similar in consulting as well. And so I just sort of enjoyed the experience and we were talking about this earlier, developed presentation, analytical communication skills and just broad industry exposure that management consulting gives you very early on. Um, and left consulting to take a six-month sabbatical to go and volunteer as a consultant um, to TechnoServe um, Inc., which is a nonprofit organization that works with entrepreneurs across the developing world, primarily in agriculture, um, just to help them in terms of growing their businesses, thinking about strategies and plugging them into bigger supply chains. Um, and so I worked in Cote d'Ivoire for six months, helping to organize their very first francophone um, business plan competition. So the idea was we would look for aspiring entrepreneurs and some existing entrepreneurs who wanted to grow their businesses. We would coach them in helping them think about a business plan development, all the various aspects from the finances to accounting, um, to the strategy, to the marketing. Um, and then we would select the best business plans and sort of give them funding and coaching and mentoring to then go out and develop the, the plans and set up the businesses. So what was the experience like and how did it compare to your prior job as a consultant with the Monitor Group? Um, and it was a great experience for me in that I got to see sort of the similarities um, between Francophone and, and Anglophone West Africa. Um, so my first experience in Francophone West Africa. Um, and just also realized that there are some key differences as well around how we think about um, entrepreneurship and aspirations and people's ambition, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing I remember was definitely going around from, from um, neighborhood to neighborhood within Abidjan, almost like the, the equivalent of local government areas, and telling them about the program and how we would select the best, I think we're going to select the best five and give them some substantial amount of money, I think it was like $10,000, um, to develop the plan. And, you know, everyone would just say, oh, but why are you only selecting a few people? Why can't you just give us all, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be just, you know, a competition. Why can't it just be for everyone? And I just thought, oh, in Nigeria, like, you wouldn't really get that. Like, well, why is it a competition? You get everybody saying, yes, me, I can win it. I want to apply. I want to apply. <laughs> but we had trouble just convincing people to apply that they would have a chance to win because everyone just was used to this handout NGO culture, just give us aid and give us money mm -hmm. to set up our micro businesses, and that's good enough. Don't let, make us compete in a market type of way. Um, so that was that was one of those things that stuck out to me. It sounds like you had a very interesting experience with TechnoServe. So tell us a little bit about what led you to Nigeria, and then eventually on to the Harvard Business School, and then Wave. Um, after my experience with TechnoServe, um, I moved to Nigeria. Um, and worked with a public policy think tank, um, which was just being launched at the time, the Center for Public Policy Alternatives. 
Um, and that was a great experience because I was sort of brought in to sort of help with a bunch of things, um, primarily around, you know, business development and, and actually doing some, some actual public policy work. That was my initial plan when I came in, like get to work on public policy projects for state governments. Um, but then quickly found myself being drafted into the most critical part of the business at that time, which was human capital. So okay. how did we find the right research analysts? How did we design recruiting systems and training systems to develop them, performance management systems to ensure that they would develop along the way? Um, and yeah, you know, and I think that was, you know, even though I'd always been passionate about young people um, and the potential that they have to do great things, if only they have knowledge and they're equipped with the awareness of how to maximize each of their opportunities, especially academic and professional opportunities. This was sort of my first foray into working in Nigeria and realizing that, whoa, the human talent issue is, is such a critical piece for most organizations that um, there's definitely worth a lot of exploration to be done here uh, around how to develop human capital so that there's a ready pool of talent, um, you know, for, for organizations that want to grow. Um, prior to that, I, I forgot to mention when I was in my final year at university, my sister, myself, and a few other friends got together and decided that we wanted to set up um, a youth-focused um, non-profit organization that would be focused on developing young people in high school and in university um, by helping them think about how to maximize their academic experiences. For example, things like, oh, you know, when you're in school and you like a certain subject, how do you start thinking about how that subject translates into a career? If mm -hmm. you like physics and math, what are the potential careers that you could do um, in the future? And how do you take advantage of things like internships and learning a second language and study abroad programs, things that make you more competitive to get into universities and et cetera. Um, and so, you know, we, we started by just having a one-day youth forum where we would invite young professionals to come and speak to high school kids um, in this forum and just sort of tell them the, sort of the things they wish they knew when they were 16 mm -hmm. around how to take advantage of, of the school system, etc. Um, and then it turned into, you know, support to help these young people who pass through the program to find internships, um, helping them connect with mentors that they had met at the forums annually. Um, and, you know, now we have, it's evolved into an annual summer school program where we bring about 50 kids together once a year. And it's a one week program and we bring in young professionals. We have self-discovery classes like public speaking, um, talent, talent. We, we have like a who wants to be a millionaire. Um, you know, we'll do like first aid classes, things like that. Just things to help young people start developing other skills outside of the usual academic. You must get A's at YX type of thing. Okay. Um, and so, so. That sort of my first foray into understanding the young Nigerian, your typical young West African who is being shortchanged by the education system, um, but has a lot of hidden potential that, that's not being unlocked. Um, so that coupled with my experience at the think tank led me when going into business school to already start thinking at the back of my mind, wait, there's something in this youth, youth unemployment and talent gap that I want to address somehow. Um, through the education system, which I'm very passionate about, um, and just let's take it from there. So going into business school, my plan was, hey, just soak up as much as you can, understand social entrepreneurship, understand what are some of the, the business models that are really driving change at the base of the pyramid, 
um, potentially go and work for an organization that does impact investing so that you can understand even more of these models from a funding perspective, investment perspective, um, understand what makes them work um, and what doesn't work, and then maybe eventually in the longer term go set up my own sort of consulting firm that helped other businesses um, to maximize their potential. Um, but somewhere along the way in business school, um, <laughs> um, I worked my first summer in business, or my, my one summer in business school, I ended up working with the Bridge International Academies, um, which is a network of primary schools, low-cost, high-quality um, primary schools um, across Kenya and, and now looking to expand across Africa and potentially even in Nigeria now. Yes. Um, so, so I worked with them for a summer and just... My, my role there was really helping them think about international expansion. So at the time, we were looking at Uganda, Ghana, Nigeria, India. And you know, I had to understand how their model worked. And I was just very impressed at the level of efficiency and focus they had in making sure that the um, education was low cost and yet quality. Because I think in Nigeria, you know, our, our big obsession with quality is, is that, it, hey, the proxy, the best proxy for quality must be price. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if something is high price, then it's high quality. And, and I loved that they had trumped that paradigm um, and we're doing it in a very cost-effective way um, and scaling because it's hard to find um, social enterprises that scale, um, especially in education, at least in Africa. So um, it was a great experience in that sense and gave me a lot of the inspiration for what I wanted to then do with youth unemployment and then vocational education. So along the way, my first year, I met a group of like-minded West Africans. One was from Nigeria, one was from Ghana, and one was from Togo. Um, and, you know, initially it was just three of us, the two Nigerians and the Ghanaian. And we would, um, you know, he was Indian, but, but born and raised, you know, pretty much grew up in Ghana all his life. Um, and we would meet once in a while um, in the innovation lab at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And we were just, you know, it's a great, great space in terms of an incubator, a hub type of space where you've got whiteboards on the walls and the entire wall is a whiteboard. So we would just sit in a room and start writing what we wanted to do um, with this idea. So first of all, we knew we wanted to tackle youth unemployment. We knew that it was a major ticking time bomb and it was a lot of what you would call bang for buck. Like if you could tackle youth unemployment, it would be a huge bang um, um, for the investment dollars that you could put into that problem. Mm. So... Um, we, we knew that whatever we did in terms of impacting young people and youth unemployment, we had to link it to jobs. So how do we get young Africans jobs? Um, and then we knew that, you know, if you wanted to get young Africans jobs, then you needed to train them and upskill them and sort of erase what the poor education system had already inculcated in them. So you met your co-founders and then you guys started thinking about solving the problem of youth unemployment in Africa. So walk us through some of the steps you guys were taking while you were still brainstorming the idea. Um, And so, yeah, through a series of these meetings from once a month to like once a week to like every day, um, we were able to come up with the model, which which became WAVE. Um, So West Africa Vocational Education, which was designed to take young people, find the most self-motivated young people, not not the most intelligent, not the most qualified, quote-unquote, in terms of academic qualifications, but find the self-motivated young person who is trying to make it in life through hard work, um, but just needs access to the opportunity. Train them, so give them the skills um, that employers are looking for. Give them the work experience that employers are looking for, either through apprenticeships or through placing them in full-time jobs. Um, and then continue their development and tracking them to help them get those incomes that they eventually need to be socially mobile 
Um, you know, so my, my selfish way of thinking about this is, look, young people have a lot of potential to change the world. Um, I see that in their counterparts in the West. Um, a lot of the change, if you look at some of the biggest companies in the world today, they are founded by young people mm-hmm. um, under the age of 35. Mm-hmm. Um, those young people were in a privileged position to do that because they didn't have to worry about where their next meal was coming from. And so when I think about my counterparts here in West Africa, if, you, if you're still trying to think about roof over your head, financial independence, and where's my next meal coming from, then you, you possibly can't think those higher level of thoughts if, if your initial needs have not been met. So if we can get young people skilled up, if we can get them to have the right mindset around problem-solving, taking initiative, and just general continuous improvement in their lives and in, in their community and in their workplace, um, you know, even if it's just... 5 to 10% that go out of there and actually do that amazing thing that changes the world, that's quite a huge population. Um, and so that's sort of where, where this idea came from. Um, how do you get young people the skills, the mindsets, and the incomes um, to be socially mobile and then eventually do greater things? Okay, that's so that's, that's Wave and that's where you find me today. <laughs> that's great. So now let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So you and your friends were working in Harvard. You were brainstorming the idea. You worked on it. You planned it. What were the initial steps taken to implement and launch this venture in Nigeria? Initial steps? Um, yes. Came up with a business plan. Um, and that was sort of a, a target, a goalpost that we could work towards. So there was a Harvard New Venture competition mm-hmm. that was in April 2013. And so we worked towards that and so submitting a business plan for that. Um, that helped us delve into what our customer value proposition was going to be, how are we going to galvanize the technology and design the operations and manage those operations so that we could deliver on that value proposition, the customer promise, which for us was really accessibility um, in terms of cost, affordability, um, relevance. Um, when someone comes and purchases vocational education, quote unquote, they're looking for a job and they need to make sure that whatever education or training you're selling to them is relevant to the job market. So that was a key part of our customer value proposition. Quality, of course, you know, will I get a job at the end of this? Um, so, so the business plan helped us come up with the customer value proposition, the technology, the operations, the management, also thinking about the market strategy. How would we get this product or service actually once, once designed? How do we get it to the market? Um, and then finally, what's, what's the revenue formula for this? How do we make sure that it's a financially sustainable organization? Um, and so coming up with the business plan was a great exercise, and that was really what got us started. Because once we won the runner-up prize of the competition, there was a social enterprise track. So all the social enterprises competed under that track, and we won the runner-up prize. So that gave us some seed funding to then come to Nigeria and get started. I mean, prior to that, while developing the business plan, we'd actually come on the ground twice during our, our second year at business school just to do some market research. So we'd spend time talking to major employers here in the hospitality and retail sector, Okay. Try, trying to understand, you know, is there a need for what we're trying to do? Is talent even a problem to you? Do you have access to a large pool of talent that you're satisfied with? Or do you think there's a lot of room for improvement in, in, in this value proposition? And we found that there was. Um, and so speaking to them on those two trips. And then the second trip, we actually had like a, we ran what you call a minimum viable product where we wanted to, you know, make this, the minimum version of this product, which would be vocational training, um, and test some of the major hypotheses around that product. So would people be willing to pay for what we had to offer? 
um, would there be a significant improvement in people's skill levels um, with that minimum product? Um, and, you know, how, how quickly could we take it to market? So these are some of the things that we did with, with our second visit to Nigeria. Um, and so by the time we won the seed funding from the business and competition, moved back to Nigeria after finishing the, the, the entire curriculum. Team. Did the no, entire team move me. back? Just you? It was just me. So at that time, there was this, one of our other co-founders came back for the summer to, to assist. But I, I was the one who was going to come and, and implement this on the ground full time. Um, people had to go back to pay off business school loans. I had been um, fortunate along the way to be sponsored for my MBA by 7up um, bottling company here in Nigeria. So I, I won their 7up um, Harvard Business School scholarship. So I'd actually come out of business school with zero loans. Uh, which was an amazing experience. And even till today, 7up still strongly supports what, what we do here at Waze um, in terms of sponsorship, in terms of um, media coverage. Um, you know, it's just been a great opportunity to, to get to know those guys. Um, and so, you know, people had to go back and, and, and do previous jobs, et cetera. Um, and I decided that I wanted to do this full time and, and try to make it work over the next few years. So I am, I am the only one on the ground implementing. And then I've got a team now, um, a local team here that's awesome and, and really does all the heavy lifting uh, while I get to run around and, and do CEO type of things. <laughs> okay, let's, let's pull some things out of that. So why focus on the hospitality and the retail sector? I know that in Nigeria, largely in Africa, that retail is still largely informal. So why take on those two subsectors or sub-industries as it were? Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's 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 informal. Retail is informal now, but it's it's growing. Yes, it's growing really fast, mm-hmm. and and that's sort of where we were banking on. Um, hospitality, you can see it as well. You you see how Transcore Hilton has just IPO'd. Um, there's quite a few Hiltons coming online. There's Starwood coming online as well. Um, you know, you you look at organizations like Walmart that are trying to hit the Nigerian market in a big way. You've got the South African retail chains that are also coming here in a big way, the shop rights, et cetera. So when you think about the potential and not just the potential, it's like actual real growth. Um, it it is the second largest, um, employer of labor, um, in the next five to 10 years, actually less than 10 years in the next five years by 2020, I think the, um, a McKinsey report that we had had read when we were developing the business plan states that there will be anywhere between eight and thirteen million jobs created across Africa in in the retail and hospitality industry. Mm. Um, so for us, it was really a matter of following the jobs um, coming after retail and hospitality. There's construction, there's manufacturing. So you know, we would easily have gone with any other any other industry if if the the demand was there in terms of jobs. We wanted to make sure that whatever we were doing it would be linked to linked to the growth in jobs. Okay. So for us, it's, it's high-growth industries, wherever those may be. And the good thing with starting with services is that it allows us to actually straddle quite a number of industries. Um, so we've got students who work in pharma and healthcare. You're targeting the retail and the hospitality industry. You have a lot of graduates that come out of universities every year. And we're talking from some of the statistics I've read about Two million graduates graduate out of Nigerian universities every year, and a large majority of them are unemployed. So is this an alternative to university education, or is this a supplement to the education? And 
maybe as a follow-up to that, why do you think the educational system has broken down and failed completely in Nigeria that many of these graduates cannot find jobs in their desired field? Um, so actually, yeah, to correct something that you said earlier, we, we actually don't focus our training on graduates. Okay. Um, oh. The way we see it is that um, graduates are the lucky, the lucky few, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when we, when we were developing this business plan, we, because of our focus on the social mission, we wanted to help those who needed it the most. Okay. And so our, our, our ideology was that, um, you know, your graduate versus your non-graduate, your graduate is actually more advantaged and your non-graduate is, is at a greater disadvantage because okay. they don't have that quote-unquote magic um, certificate that quote-unquote will open all doors. What we have found actually is that when you look at the pool of people who've applied to our program, so we've had, I think, over 1,200 applicants since we started this last year, right? Um, majority of those are actually graduates. So what, what it turns out mm -hmm. is that your graduate who's complaining about being unemployed and asking the government to set up a... I heard this on the radio on my way in, and I was so livid. The graduates are complaining that, oh, government needs to do something and support them with welfare. Those graduates are sitting around waiting for this golden job to, to appear before their feet. Yeah. In actual fact, your non-graduate who only has a YAC is not unemployed. They are taking a job long ago. They are working and they are saving money to either go back to school or to just you know support dependents and their family, etc. So... You know, I, I, my, 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 my stance on this whole graduate unemployment thing is that a lot of young people are just being picky and being entitled okay. and don't realize that the education that they have gotten in the system is not valuable in the market. So you can't come and say, oh, I have a graduate degree. Please let you know, give me a job and start me at X salary because, hey, I've gone to university. No, it doesn't start that way. You have zero bargaining power because everybody knows that half of the time your degree has been bought yeah. or you didn't attend classes and somehow managed to, you know, wiggle your way through to getting it. And even if you did attend classes, the classes didn't really teach you much because all you did was cram and regurgitate. Yes. <laughs> so, for example, I had a young man call us yesterday. Oh, no, we called him yesterday to find out, oh, we admitted you to our program. Why didn't you accept the admission? And he said, oh, you know, I just wanted to find out, don't you have like a distance learning thing where I can just go to the cyber cafe and read the, read the notes and the classes and then just, um, you know, Perfect. take an exam yeah. at the end of the program? And I said, no, 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 that's exactly what you've been doing your entire life. And that's why you're still unemployed and have no skills that employers care about. You need to come to the class and actually learn the classes. And a lot of the learning comes from the interaction. And that's why, um, you know, you need to, <laughs> the program is not designed for that. Hmm. But they are just very used to that. Um, and that, that's, you know, for, so for us, I'd say we're both an alternative and a supplement because 40% of our students end up being graduates. And that's just the reality of realize, where yeah. we are is that, you know, graduates are quite desperate for jobs as well. And they have the same challenges because they've been unemployed for a while. The market doesn't care about their degree. Hmm. Um, and so we end up getting more people who apply to our program who are graduates and than non-graduates. But our focus is still on helping the non-graduates, people who need it the most, really. And, and so even when we have graduates who come here, they're able to demonstrate that, look, they, they equally are financially hard up and they're having challenges. They've been unemployed for a long time and they really do need that leg up that WAVE provides. Okay. Great. So I guess the follow-up question I had asked earlier was, what are the key factors that have broken down in the Nigerian education system that makes it necessary for... A, someone that is already a graduate to come and take um, vocational training in order to get a job? Mm, people have not invested in the system in the right way. So in some cases, they've invested in buildings. Um, 
but they haven't invested in the infrastructure that will lead to improved learning outcomes. Okay. So if you build a nice building and say, we've adopted a school, look at us, we've built the buildings, we've replaced the louvers, uh, we've refabricated the toilets, that doesn't lead to anyone learning anything. What leads to people learning is the right teachers and the right curriculum, and that's what we haven't invested in. Hmm. Um, we haven't invested in, in our NRDC, I think the National Research and Development for, Council for, for Curriculum. We haven't invested in, in training our teachers. So you've got your NCE that people graduate from, but we all know here, you know, no offense to NCE holders, but it, it is the next best alternative. If I didn't get into the mainstream degree program, then I'll go and do an NCE for one year and get my national certificate of education yeah. um, and then go and be a teacher, you know. So it's, it's this last last mm-hmm. call, last, last, last alternative for people. So our teachers are not the most skilled people. Um, and so you, you're passed through the system without actually learning. Learning. Um, you get your degree. We had a young lady come in here the other day and she, she'd finished SS2. She never took her Wayek, but she, she'd gone all the way to SS2. Um, and it, we found out within the first few minutes of her being at the interview that she couldn't read and write. Wow. Um, she had someone had, she had heard about, was, I think somebody gave her a flyer and she just was that desperate that she just, needed this opportunity she went and told a friend the friend gave gave her their own cv and wrote her name on it for her the friend helped her fill out her application online and she came here just hoping that some way or the other we wouldn't quite notice that uh, she couldn't read and write um but she made it all the way to ss2 and this was in lagos so she started off in the in the village i think she lived in joss or somewhere she started off there but being passed from class to class without ever really knowing how to read and write, and then made it to Lagos, I think, in SS1 after she had failed her JSS3, started a school in Festac, and would be passed from class to class. And I think it was a free public school type of thing. But then one day, maybe the principal said, look, we need to really clean up shop here. We're going to give everybody an exam to find out who, who can stay and who can't. And then she, you know, they realized that she, she failed the exam and she was asked to leave. And so she went to go help her mom sell in the market. Um, so you have a system that has not invested in teachers and has not invested in the curriculum. I know some teachers in some low-cost pri- pri- primary schools in some poorer parts of Lagos that are earning as little as 6K a month. If you're paying a teacher 6,000 naira a month, they're not really going to be motivated. Um, they can't develop themselves, so there's no continuous education for the teachers themselves. Um, and and that, I think those are the core things that have led to the system malfunctioning so poor investment in the wrong things so if you look at our investment in terms of naira terms dollar terms yes we are investing quite a bit in in education but we're just not doing it in the right areas and what would you advise the government to do in terms of changing their current investment policies and investing in just buildings and structures as opposed to the real soft technical investments that they need to make in the lives of teachers and educators invest in the quote-unquote unsexy stuff forget the buildings and how that would win your elections because hey they've built a new school in the village woohoo no invest in the teachers invest in the curriculum um and and provide an avenue for the brightest of the bright to opt into teaching by encouraging and changing the value mindset around who a teacher is and what that means i think other economies like the uk um have done a good job of just trying to rebrand teaching and make it cool and make it something that young people opt into and are excited to be a part of mm-hmm. um you know there are programs like teach for america that you know about i'm sure yes. that take the brightest kids out of college and you know put them in teaching for two years and even if they then go back most of them will go back and do other things but for the two years you, you know you've got 
quality teachers, at least you've trained them and prepared them. And, and that's what our NYSC really has the potential to be. And it's just such a waste in that you've got young people who are sent to schools, no preparation whatsoever. They're out of depth, out of water. So from the moment they get in, their teaching experience is a horrible one and none of them want to go back into teaching. Hmm. Whereas for the one year you had that, if you had only spent six to eight weeks just training them and preparing them on what it meant to make a lesson plan, what it meant to you know develop, you know, not develop your own curriculum, follow a curriculum, what it meant to coach and mentor students, um, you know, just giving them some guidance on, on what it means to be a teacher and the challenges around that, then they would be able to have so much value in the remaining 10 months that they were in their PPAs in these different schools all over Nigeria. Um, and add value to those schools, even for the one year, and, and feel some, some level of gratification that maybe even 10 to 20% of them might decide, okay, actually, I want to take up this teaching thing further and, and, and go back into the system. Mm. And that would add some value in a sense. Um, so, yeah, so I think advice for government is really reevaluate how you're investing and start investing based on outcomes and start measuring yourself and your, your own performance based on outcomes. So you can't be Minister of Education and tell me that every year we're doing worse and worse in, in, in YEC. Yeah. And 38, 38% pass rate is where we are today and we're, we're patting ourselves on the back and giving ourselves bonuses. Like, no, 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 people need to be fired if we keep doing worse in YEC. So focus on the outcomes. What percentage of people are making it in JAM? What percentage of people are getting into university and actually you know, getting a pass grade? Um, common entrance. So look at each level and see what level of people are passing. And then if, if you're not... If that number isn't going up, then we need to really, be, and we know it's not. So you know, so, so the, the powers that be need to then go back and and we strategize. Yeah, because like you just mentioned, you can find someone passing through the system entirely through cheating the system or all kinds of shortcuts, and you will not really know the true picture of what is happening on the ground until it's not too late. That. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, who are the people that are currently training your young people did you find um, are, you, are you teaching yourself or did you find teachers from external areas yeah, to so come we into have, the system? we have facilitators um okay. for, you know because at this stage you're not really it's not the one-way type of teaching you do when you're in primary school and yeah. you're giving you know direct information it's it's very interactive it's it's case-based and it's student-driven learning so we have facilitators who are both industry experts so people from hospitality and retail industry and who run their own independent consulting companies for the industry. Um, and so they come in and they're sort of um, faculty members at WAVE. Um, and then we've got people who train on the um, employability skills. So things like communication skills, teamwork, problem solving. Um, and they also run their own training outfits and then just, you know, are part of the faculty here. So that's sort of the model we've used. And, you know, we're, we're trying to bring in our own, recruit our own in-house full-time trainers as well who will then, you know, do a, do, do a mix of the training. But we will always have those independent faculty members because they are the industry experts that help us make sure that our curriculum and our, our methods are still relevant to what the industry wants, rather than just having people who are full-time faculty and don't actually work in the industry and aren't on the cutting edge of how things are changing. Okay. And what are some of the achievements you've seen in the program in the last one year since you've been operating? Um... So, I mean, achievements we've seen in the program, I'd say a number of people we've been able to train and place in jobs. So we've been able to train 100 to date. Um, we just started a new class yesterday. So, okay. you know, our, our training is done in 18 days. And you've, uh, so and you've placed 100 of them already? No. So we've placed directly placed ourselves, about 73% of them, 73 okay. of them in jobs. Okay. Um, you have another 10% of them that go out and get jobs on their own. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, so maybe they come to us during the program and say, actually, you know what, I 
I, I have these other opportunities and these other things that I want to now do um, outside of the industry. So if, if you don't mind, I, I'm going to try 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 my luck. Um, so you know, we, we we end up having about 80% of our students who are employed, and the remaining 20% we continue to work with them to to get jobs. So we're constantly working with our students, trying to help them. Um, you know, get access to more interview opportunities, etc. So people will come to us and say, oh, so I hear that placement is guaranteed, 100% placement rate. And we tell them, we don't place people in jobs. We facilitate yeah. Yeah. your job, your job, um, you know, your employment, your recruitment process. So we have access to employers in our network. And whenever there's, there's job opportunities, they will pick up the phone and call us. And then we would look at your own preferences. And if you are interested in that job, we would then match you to then attend an interview and then you go out and deliver, you know, and sell yourself. We, we can't, we can't oh. sell our students, each individual students. We can sell Wave and the brand and the quality of what we've trained people in. Mm-hmm. And that's what gives you that leg up in that you're the first person to get the interview, but you then have to go into the interview and sell yourself. And so there is that level of entitlement that we always have to overcome when people first come, come to the interview to, to apply for Wave and tell them, hey, it's, there's no free lunch. Like we're here to give you a platform and a leg up, but the rest of it is you're gonna have to do, do, do to do that leg work as well. Oh. Um, other achievements, you know, the things around some of the, the foundations that we've been able to garner support from in terms of funding. Um, you know, one of our biggest funders is the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, and they have been a phenomenal support for us. There's also the Siegel Family Foundation. There's Echoing Green as a fellowship. There's another fellowship that I just came back from. Um, the Rainer Arnold Fellowship program that's run by the Molago Foundation. So there's quite a lot of momentum and excitement around what we're doing yes. um, in the U.S. Um, and so I think our next next port of call is to just galvanize some of that, but also gain some local traction amongst industry players and um, other organizations here. Um, because there's no reason why people in the U.S. should be more excited about what we're doing and the impact we're having yeah. than people locally. Yeah, that's right. And... Obviously, it's a young venture and it's a social enterprise venture and you're supported by all these fellowships and institutions. But is let's talk about the pricing structure for WAVE, the WAVE program. Mm-hmm. How do you price um, the education for the students? Um, so we have a shared, it's like a double-payer double model. So okay. we share the cost of the program between ourselves, between the employer and between the unemployed young person who comes to us. So there's an upfront tuition fee of about $60, which is about 10,000 naira. About 70% of our students actually cannot afford that full 10,000 naira. So we ask them to pay a deposit of some sort. So be it, yeah, so be it as little as, um, you know, 2,000 naira deposit just to ensure that there's a level of self-motivation okay. for you to you know, make a sacrifice to come. Yeah, commitment. Okay. Um, and then um, when we place them in a job, whether they get a job on, on their own or we place them in a job, we take a third of their first month's paychecks to go towards, you know, so that, that the $60 we charge them up front is a subsidized fee, right? It's definitely not the full cost of the program. So yeah. we then take a third of their first month's paycheck once they're employed. Um, and then we also charge the employer uh, a recruitment fee as well. And so, so the, the, the funding comes from those three sources. That's our earned income. Okay. And those for, uh, so, so as, as young people, when people come to the interview and say, ah, am I guaranteed a job? I say, well, it's in my best interest to get you a job because if we don't get you get a paid. job, we miss out two-thirds of our paycheck. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, so it means that our incentives are 100% aligned um, with our trainees. Okay. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good way to look at it because 
A, you not only show that you're committed to the person's future and the person's success, but you're also letting the employer put their money where their mouth is in terms of if they're complaining about not having qualified staff, they can also pay to support the training of someone that could come and work and add yeah. some benefits to the organization. Yeah. And I think employers, their big concerns around hiring young people is, hey, what if I train them and they leave, etc. Mm-hmm. So we we are here to say, look, there's a return on your investment because this young person has already invested in themselves to go through this training. We have done the heavy lifting of screening them because that's the biggest critical success for you know critical success factor. Um, it, it's getting the right people through the training. If you have someone who's not self-motivated and they come through the training, they're not going to take as much out of it as a person who is super motivated. So we've done the heavy lifting of screening the person. The person, as well as us, have invested in their own training and their skills development. And then we're bringing a ready-made product to you. Who We say, hey, look, they have most of the thinking skills. Now the practical skills of how you want things to be done in your specific organization, you're going to have to do some of the heavy lifting and train them in that. And that's why we're giving you a discount on that, on that price you're paying because we know that they're not 100% ready, but they're 80% of the way there because they now know how to think and they know how to communicate what they know and what they don't know. And the rest of it, you can train them in your own specific way of doing things. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's the value we bring to employers. Okay. Now, Misson, let's take a minute to thank our friends before we get on with the rest of the show. Hey guys, have I got some exciting news for you today. Did you know that your sense of smell is one of the most powerful memory triggers ever? Doctors have determined that you are 10 times as likely to remember an event if it's strongly attached to a particular scent or fragrance. So, the next time you're looking to purchase a souvenir for one of your milestone events like a birthday, wedding, or naming ceremony, why not commemorate the event with a unique fragrance? La Femme Couch is Nigeria's premier bespoke perfumistas. They will work with you to create a fragrance that is truly unique and complementary to your occasion. So, when the last bottle of champagne is popped and those final photos are taken, give your guests a gift they will truly remember. Give them the gift of a lifetime. Give them the scent of the occasion. La Fema Couture, that's L-A-F-A-M-E-A-C-C-O-U-T-R-E, Bespoke Perfumistas. Are you running out of food and need to run to the store for supplies? Is your baby still crying because his favorite milk is out of stock at the supermarket? Well, don't fret. Supermart NG is here to save the day. Supermart NG is Nigeria's leading online grocery store. All you have to do is shop at their site, and a team of personal shoppers will package and deliver the goods to your doorstep within three hours of placing an order. No more six-hour traffic jams. Spend more quality time with your family by shopping at Supermart NG. That's S-U-P-E-R-M-A-R-T. NG. See you there. So, where do you see Wave five years from now? Um, five years from now, I see us training thousands of people a year. Um, so, when we initially wrote the business plan, our plan was to be training twenty-five thousand people a year in five years, um, doing this across multiple sites across West Africa and doing it across different um, sectors. So, not just retail and hospitality. I want to eventually see a wave construction, a wave manufacturing, um, wave financial services. Um, But it's really having maximized the utilization of our assets in that we are at an equilibrium class size that makes it 
economically viable. Um, we are in multiple sites. Um, and so, you know, right now, now we turn away quite a few of our students are not eligible when they apply to our program because we're only in Lagos. And so, you know, over time, we definitely want to not just be in Lagos, but be across Nigeria and be across West Africa and just become the trusted, number one trusted brand for human capital, both semi-skilled, entry-level, and eventually even middle management. Okay. So uh, that's where we want to be. <laughs> and do you think a franchising model would help Wave grow? Most definitely. Most definitely. I, I don't think we can do it all ourselves. So okay. it's either partnering with, with um, private sector players to, to run franchise, franchises or partnering with governments to help them manage their existing vocational centers that aren't necessarily, you know, in sync with the market or partnering with, with the market itself or partnering with employers to help them develop their own training academies to meet their own demand for people as they expand. Um, so there are definitely many avenues to scale. It could be partnering with other um, social impact organizations that work with young people mm. to, to share our curriculum with them so that um, they can also run the similar sort of training. Um, it could also be licensing our own curriculum across high schools in Nigeria, across secondary schools in Nigeria, so that when a young person finishes SS3 and doesn't pass JAM or doesn't have access to university because they can't afford it, that there is an opportunity for them to go straight into a vocation rather than continuing to take JAM for three years and be unemployed in that time and be a burden on their parents financially. Mm. Yes, because I know, unlike getting into college in the U.S. where you can take the SATs at any point in time, in Nigeria it's just um, a one-year a yearly event. So if you take the JAMB exam, which is the matriculation exam, and you don't pass, you have to wait until the next year to take the exam again. Yeah. Um, do you think it is, or do you think the government can actually change that, whereas instead of running it annually, you could have multiple exams over multiple periods in the year, and then if someone were to, for example, I think I heard of a model in Switzerland where they take an exam, and through the exam, I don't know how they figure this out, but there are some people that they will say, okay, this guy has a high aptitude. He can maybe take the university exam and go to college, or he will take the vocational exam, and if he does very well, he can go towards the vocational training aspect. So I think you're given the opportunity to take two exams or something like that, if I remember correctly. And depending on how you do in both exams, you are either encouraged to follow the one where your direct skill sets are greater. Do you think something like that would be useful in the Nigerian system? Yeah, I think it would. Yeah. I, I don't people think people have to wait a whole year before they can apply to go to university. Okay. Okay. And right now you said you're the only one out of the original team running the venture. Is there any plan in place for your co-founders to join you on the ground? Um, yes, so they currently are still very much involved. You know, one of them sits on our board formally, um, and the others, we get together regularly and have a call. We had one this past Sunday. So they're sort of like a mini board in that we check in regularly, and they help me think about some of the strategic challenges and opportunities that we face. So they're still very much involved, just not at a full-time capacity. Okay. Um, and so helping me think about how to expand the team on the ground, um, that's, you know, that's sort of their role in the longer term as well. Okay. Okay. Let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you personally, as we start to wind down the show. Could you tell us about some of the challenges that you're currently facing as the CEO of a fast-growing company in West Africa? 
significant personal challenge yeah. um, I have is, is, is in the area of time management. Um, I just very poor time manager I've always been and trying to work on it actively now and to being, being an entrepreneur has, has forced me to sort of do that. Um, but it's been a challenge, I think, especially with a team of people who sort of need that structure. Um, you know, our culture and our employee value proposition has quickly become one where you need to be very flexible and have a high tolerance for ambiguity if you work at Wave because, um, you know, there's just a lot of things coming at you from different directions. And that's a huge part of it has to do with how disorganized I am as a person. And so that sort of feeds into some of the management management. Um, so it's definitely a personal challenge and an Achilles heel that I'm, I'm working on. Um, yes, but, yeah. but it doesn't sound to me like you're spending your time watching TV or reading um, mag- yeah, but there's there's, there's work there's there's working long and there's working smart. Okay. So I've just never been the one who finished all my homework on time. You know, I'll work long, I'll cook, I'll you know. I remember business school. I'll always cook while I start my homework. Like the other people would finish class at three forty-five, do their homework till five six, and be done. I would go home, take a nap, relax cook while I was reading, then some friends would come over, I'd be gisting and reading my cases while I'm gisting, and then everybody would go to bed at about midnight, one o'clock, and then I'll start. Okay, let me start doing my work, and then maybe go to bed at three or four. You know, so just that general sense that, oh, you know, I can be up late, and I'm actually more productive at night when everyone's gone to bed, but it's definitely a bad habit, because it means that everyone starts their day at 6, 7 a.m., and I'm still fast asleep, because I just went to bed a few hours earlier. So making sure that my own personal work plan and work cycle does not affect the rest of the teams you know i need to force myself to be more of a morning person and be more effective and be here um to sort of guide the team on their own regular timeline which is you know uh, people people are just not supposed to be up till two in the morning working that's just not it's not fair um and so I, i would find myself sometimes you know sending messages to my team at two in the morning not because i expect them to reply but because I'm still up working and if I don't send the message, I'm going to forget. And I don't want to have to program myself to, you know, do it at 7 a.m. or whatever. Like if it's on my mind now, I'll send the question and I know that they'll check it out when they wake up. But it meant that some of them would like always be on and like, oh, you may wake up in the morning to get a glass of water. You may wake up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and use the bathroom. And then you see your phone blinking and there's a message from the boss saying, hey, like you need to do this, blah, blah. So it's not it's not an effective way. And so I've had to sort of use other time management tools. There are things like Asana that allow you to just sort of put the task up somewhere and so that whenever anyone logs into Asana, they can see the different tasks that they are assigned or that they need to, to, to comment on okay. rather than it being an email that's sitting and blinking in their phone, you know? Okay. So now I have, I try not to send random WhatsApp messages at eight, uh, after eight o'clock at night because I just... Okay. And um, I guess my other question will be this: the logistical challenge that you faced. Yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, hello. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I thought you were talking to someone else. I was like, um, you started this company. You showed up in Nigeria, and you were all alone. So, how did you go about like getting the assistance you required? You know, recruiting staff, finding an office. You know, all those nitty-gritty logistical and on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground challenges. How did you go about doing that? Um, I think it helped to have a really awesome network of friends, family, 
who, you know, everyone was just sort of on board. They didn't quite know what I was doing, why I was doing it per se. But if I would send a targeted question to them saying, hey, I'm looking for space to rent a training room for three weeks in Lagos. Can anyone help? People would always be responsive and try to help. And so, you know, I, th- I thank my parents for always ensuring that I would come back to Nigeria when I was in school abroad, you know, multiple times a year. I would do my summer internships in Lagos. So I just had a group of diverse friends, even from doing NYSC as well, people who either had never left the country or some people who left and had come back. So there was just a network of people that I could always call on when I needed assistance. So in terms of the, the first set of interns I recruited to help me that summer, it was family and it was friends who referred people to me. There were cousins who helped out. So it was really all hands on deck. By the time we started recruiting formally, there were amazing platforms like Jobberman that allowed me to find some really, really cool people. So sometimes people ask me, like, they ask my team members, oh, how did you know Mesa before Wave? And they say, I didn't know her before Wave. I met her through Jobberman when I was invited for an interview. Mm-hmm. So God's been very good in that sometimes I'll just pray and say, look, I need help. I don't know where we're going to find good people. Everyone struggles with find, finding good people. That's our re- reason for even existing. Yeah. Um, so, of course, we face the same challenges, but you know there's just been a lot of lot of assistance and we found some really solid team members who really keep the ground keep everything running even when i'm not around and that's that's really amazing i think that's 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 when you know you've got a good team when you can go to bed and and, and travel and do other things and know that everything is taken care of yeah because i've spoken with another entrepreneur and they said the same problem they're trying to solve in the employment sector the same problem they all initially faced in terms of oh, yeah. finding the right people, putting the systems and the structures in place, ensuring that um, they're not taxed all the time from the state government or the federal government, things like th- those issues where in the U.S., for example, you wouldn't actually think of it. You just know, okay, I have to pay taxes April 15th. You know, I can go on one of two systems and find people, but in Nigeria, the roadmap is not really as clear as it is in other places. So I just wanted to see how you yourself um, overcame that type of obstacle. Okay. So what entrepreneur do you admire the most and why? Or which entrepreneur do you admire the most and why? I saw that question earlier, and I think I just do a, I do a poor job of keep, keeping myself informed of, of great entrepreneurs out there. So to be honest, I don't actually have an answer for an entrepreneur I admire the most and why. Okay. I have some really interesting books I've been reading that have given me some insights into okay. like, some entrepreneurs. Like what, for example? Um, there's one I read recently called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and it's written by Ben Hor- Horowitz, yeah. who has been in the U.S. and, you know, founded and, and led quite a few um, tech companies. And, and he's just someone who had a lot of really good answers to some very hard things that entrepreneurs and CEOs eventually have to face around, you know, hiring and firing people, managing your board, keeping your your shareholders um, happy or, or giving them the bad news when they shouldn't, when, you know, when they're not happy and, and making sure that they don't fire you. Um there's another one I'm reading now called The Alliance, and it's by um, Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, um, and some other co-authors as well. Um, and, you know, he uses a lot of examples from how they manage talent at LinkedIn. Um, it's really about how do you just manage talent and, and, and get the most out of them while they also get the most out of you, the, the employer. Um, and so that's the, you know, the, definitely LinkedIn is an organized, you know, it's a tool and product that I always found useful. But now that I have this other 
a perspective on sort of how things are run on the inside and, and the founding vision. It's actually a very inspirational organization and, and he's doing a great job as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Okay. Now, looking back on your career, if you had to go back in time to advise yourself when you were starting out this new venture, what's the key advice you'd give yourself? Um, I think key advice would be um, just focus on galvanizing a good team of people around you. Um, I think it's it's taken me a while to, to get to that point where I realize that my 80% of my time needs to be spent on supporting my team, supporting my people. Um, and yes, somehow, somewhere in between there, another 80% of my time is meant to be spent on, on delivering on the model and another 80% of my time is meant to be spent on fundraising. But I think that people aspect and realizing even though that that was the business we were in, we spent a lot of time trying to support our own trainees and our alumni to make sure that they were thriving on their own jobs, but sort of lost sight of the fact that internally we needed to be supporting the team here. Like they needed to feel empowered so they could go out and empower our students, our beneficiaries, our clients. Um, and so just, yeah, you know, using myself as the key recruiting officer as well. I, I always call myself the chief experimenting officer. My job is to experiment on various elements of the model and figure out how to make sure that they're all scalable um, and that they're the right parts of the model to be scaling. Um, but now seeing myself as, you know, the chief chief recruiting officer, chief HR person responsible for building that culture and ensuring that people want to work here and are having fun working here and are also developing in terms of their own personal goals for development um, through working here. So, you know, it's just given me a whole new lens on, on what some of my responsibilities are. And I wish I had, you know, gotten wind of that earlier. So, yeah, my job as a chief people officer. Okay. And if you were to advise recent grads starting out or thinking of launching a venture, what would you tell a recent grad to do? Um, I think there's an element of just going for it straight out of school. Um, as much as there are lots of connections to be made and things to still learn in the industry. I feel like if you've done a lot of that after undergraduate, um, coming out of graduate school, I think the conventional wisdom is to work for a few more years, build a stronger network. But if you can do some of that homework before you get into grad school and use the grad school period to actually build some of the targeted networks you need to have to, to help your business thrive, then go ahead and do it straight out of school because there's just less to lose. Um, the golden handcuffs are real. So the moment you do take that job, it's harder to walk away. Yeah. Um, and so I see people who sort of did that for about 10 years after grad school and, and are only just now trying to transition into doing what it is that they're truly passionate about. So I'd say, yeah, you know, at some element of be realistic and make sure that whatever you're doing can, can feed you and, and even more. But you want to make a positive difference in the world. And if you can find that thing that you're truly passionate about, then spend 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 your time on that. Um, you can you can do it outside of work, but I, I think most entrepreneurs are the type of people that will spend 100% of their time at some point in the early days doing just that, um, doing just what their enterprise is about, rather than having much of a social life, etc. And so it's important to be doing something you're genuinely passionate about because that's what will keep you going. So I sort of summarize it by saying, passion eats talent for breakfast sometimes. <laughs> most times. Fashion aids talent for breakfast. That's a new one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's, that's, that would be my advice. Okay. And now tell me a little bit about 
how you manage your your day especially in lagos where things are not quite as easy to schedule and plan and you have to juggle between a personal life and a professional life how how do you manage balancing both of them your work life balance um i don't have one um sadly and so that's why i'm not necessarily an entrepreneur to to be admired um i think i'm working on it okay but for now i think you know most most businesses will have that phase where at some point you know things things don't work if you're not around um uh, not not necessarily around present physically but more around mentally around and and putting like you know 100% of brain power on it and so that's sort of the stage we're in now mm-hmm. and i think it's important to have a timeline for yourself to say look at some point this enterprise must have reached the stage where i don't need to be 110% of my time on it um i can definitely do a bit less and then bring in other elements but i think you know it's you never really quite reach a balance it's more of a juggling act and it's saying look the moment i am at work I am 110% at work. It's a juggling act in that when you juggle, you throw one ball in the air and you have your hand, one ball in your hand. And so when you're at work, so I I was saying, I was saying that it's, it's, it's less of a balance and almost more of a juggling act. And this was something I heard from, um, you know, another great entrepreneur back in business school, just, you know, it's a juggling act. So when you, when you're doing work, you give 110% to work. You, You throw the ball that says life up in the air and you hold the work ball in your hand and you focus on that. And when you get home, you throw the other ball up and you take your life ball and you're 100% at life. So I try now when I'm with friends to just put away the phone and just focus on being with friends. Um, if, you know, yesterday, I think it was Sunday the other day, and I, I really thought, oh, I should be working, I should be doing it. But I said, no, you know what? I just want to watch TV and not think for a while. So I'm just going to do that and put my phone away. So I think making sure that it's quality versus quantity, at least for now, if I can do more, more life, you know, work and life should really be one and intertwined, to be honest. If your passion and your, your, your work is, is, a, is a reflection and an extension of your life purpose, then, then work and life really aren't that separate. But the idea is when you're doing family and friends, do family and friends 100% and leave work behind. And when you're doing work, then you do that 100% as well, as best as possible. So never quite a balance, but more about a juggling act that's quite... Um, quite fluid and dynamic <laughs> oh, okay well what okay so what do you do to relax um i hang out with friends um i, I have a good group of friends and so when i'm with them I, we just laugh and, and do other things we, we go see films we we go hang out you know I, I enjoy travel i enjoy just being with friends and getting to talk about non-work things and just laugh about the observations of, of lagos and what an interesting and amusing place it is <laughs> I think I've had a little bit of those conversations myself. Yeah, exactly. So, so those are those are always good. Um, I think sometimes you 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 hang out with people and you find yourself wait a second, I'm, I'm pitching work right now. I need to stop that and just focus on listening to them and what's going on in their lives and and being 100% available to them to to talk about what they're going through personally. So, yeah, that's kind of what I do. Okay. Watch watch TV sometimes, Crime Channel. TLC. There are a few channels out there that really just get you soaked and say, "Ah, oh, wow! You mean the world is this of a, this much of a crazy place? Thank God I live in Lagos." <laughs> <laughs> so those are usually helpful TV shows. Okay. Good lad. Thank you for that. That's interesting to hear that you also take time to watch TV like the rest of us. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So this is the final question. So what's if you have do you have any like final words of wisdom you'd want to give maybe a young person that's listening to this show just graduated, you know, doesn't know the next step to take in their life. Um what's what's the final word of wisdom you'd want to share with such a person? That's mm. at a crossroad in their life right now. I think maybe just don't don't shortchange yourself by not taking the time to think about what you're genuinely passionate about and what makes you tick. Like, if it's not passion, then it, it should be purpose. Um, and I think sometimes we say, oh, you know, I'm too busy just, you know, trying to make ends meet or just living my life to, to, to think about those sorts of things. You know, not everybody can do the passion thing. I have to focus on getting a job, getting the right skills. Yes, you should focus on getting a job and getting the right skills, but they need to be tied to a bigger vision because that's what self-motivation is and that's what we try to even teach our students our young people who come across young people every day it's the nature of our business it's our product and we're always trying to convince them to just take the time now to think about where they want to go in terms of a longer term vision in terms of their purpose and their passion in their lives and then work backwards to now and say okay this is there for what i should be doing for the next three to five years of my life is developing this skill set or developing this network of people or just, you know, this sort of exposure to a certain industry. Um, but don't underestimate the role of, of passion and purpose in what you do. I think is what I would advise young people. Okay. Don't underestimate the role of passion and purpose in what you do. That's, um, that's a great piece of advice. So, Mishan, we'd like to thank you for coming on to the show and sharing your story and your vision talking about WAVE and what you're doing to change the lives of young Africans, young Nigerians in Nigeria that are still trying to decide what to do with their life. It's been a pleasure listening to your stories, hearing your words of wisdom and your encouragement. And obviously, we'd love to talk to you maybe somewhere down the line after things have continued to grow and progress and scale up at WAVE. Thank you. And there you have it, guys. Another fantastic episode with a great entrepreneur that's doing some wonderful things in Africa. And I'd just like to direct you guys to the interview once again. After you've listened to it, if you, if you would really like to pull out some of the little nuggets that were hidden in there, just take a minute to get a notepad and a pen and then replay the episode again and just listen to what she said carefully. And you'll be able to pick out some valuable nuggets of wisdom. I just want to thank Misson once again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure hosting her and learning from her and hearing about her experience and what she's trying to do in that part of the world. And I'd like to thank you guys to the listeners of this podcast. It, without you guys, I mean, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking to these amazing people and sharing these stories that are not really told out there in the mainstream media. So... Just again, a round of applause and a big thank you to you guys for listening and continuing to listen. We're winding down 2014. Today is uh, December 7th as of current recording. And so we're going to be preparing for the 2015 season. And I'd just like to ask you guys, you know, to send me some emails. If you listen to the show and you like the show and you want to hear more um interviews from fantastic entrepreneurs across africa please send me an email at chi at com. you can suggest an entrepreneur that you think would be valuable to come on the show 
You can also suggest what you'd like to see, what you liked, what you didn't like, you know, any suggestions you'd like to make. We'd want to ensure that 2015 becomes a year for you to truly remember by us talking to some awesome, awesome entrepreneurs that, I mean, are just literally just going to blow your mind. So if you could send any suggestions, please feel free to email me at chi at odeshi.com. And since Christmas is coming up in a couple of days, I'd like to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I think we have one or two more episodes before season one ends. And then I'll also bring out a bonus episode of the podcast for how to prepare to have a great 2015. It's going to have a lot of tips, tricks, tactics, strategies, how to plan your year. I'll also put up on the website a couple of tools that I think would be extremely beneficial for someone that wants to have a truly, truly magnificent, or as my sister would say, a truly, truly outrageous 2015. So it's going to become, it's going to be a collation of all the tools that I've used in the current year and some new tools that I think would be extremely beneficial based on my test. I'll have some worksheets there and some other stuff. So I'm working to put this um, Christmas package together and it'll be freely downloadable on the website once it's done. So I'll let you guys know as soon as it's done, most likely it'll be early 2015, that package is going to come out and you guys will really have some some gadgets in your tool belt, as Batman would say. <laughs> so yeah, so watch out for that for 2015. And I guess till the next episode, have a Merry Christmas and a fantastic New Year. Cheers. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources. And we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.